episode 25 of the Water Break podcast. Here's your host, Heather Jennings. Welcome to Water Break, where we try to bridge the gap between water operators and engineers. In today's episode, we're going to discuss the diving in the deep with Robert Greenspan, president of Midco Diving and Marine Services. Robert's an active outdoorsman, and we're excited to have you on the podcast. Thank you, Heather. I'm glad to be here today. I have been so curious on the topic of diving in the water industry. I share with you a little bit that I learned a little bit about diving when I lived as a kid in Japan, but this is a whole different ballgame. And I've seen it in ship documentaries and always wanted to learn how it works. So I'm so glad you joined us today. Thank you. How did you get into this field? Personally, I grew up on the West Coast, Santa Cruz area, San Francisco Bay area. And I was always around water, always interested in the water. Scuba diving became a passion in my teenage years. And uh, at about the age of 25, I was working retail management and decided I needed to do something else. And I saw a magazine ad and it talked about going to commercial dive school. And I go, well, if I can make money doing that, I'm going to give it a go. And that's pretty much how it started for me. What does it take to get into this profession other than just an interest? I think the first thing to become a, a commercial diver is to be comfortable in the water. You know, a lot of people go to dive school with, mm-hmm. with no experience and they find out real quick that working in the underwater environment is not for them. Okay. I myself, uh, having done scuba diving, I was always very comfortable in the water. It's just like a second home for me. So I think I had a leg up. You know, the attrition rate for guys that go to dive school is very, very high. Most mm-hmm. people don't last even a year in this industry before they're moving on to something else. Oh, wow. Okay. So a diver is someone who you know, works underwater, but what else do they have to have to do what you do? In a nutshell, a commercial diver is basically a construction worker, a laborer underwater. As you progress in the industry, you'll pick up different trades. There's guys that can weld really well underwater and they kind of go down that path. Uh-huh. There's inspection divers that can get real detailed with inspection work and they'll go down that path. But generally, I always say it's a jack of all trades and a master of none. Um, (laughs) It it really is true. Being a, a successful commercial diver isn't just about working underwater, you have to be able to do the topside work too, mm-hmm. handling mm-hmm. divers' hoses and equipment and being safe. You really got to have eyes on the back of your head to be successful in this industry. What are other qualifications that you recommend? I, I will say this is a young man's game. Okay. I just turned 55 this week. I've been doing it for I think 28 years now. Being young and healthy is, is definitely a plus. Having a good mechanical background, I think, is important. Almost having an, an engineering mindset when you approach projects mm-hmm. uh, will help make you successful. You know, the guys that come out of dive school that have either a mechanical background or a construction background or even do, being a laborer are the guys that seem to really excel in this industry. Uh, where some guys, you know, are more oriented to do other types of work other than a, a skilled tradesman type job. You also have to be really fit, correct? I saw some of the pictures of you guys in dive suits going up and down these ladders. I'm like, holy crap. (laughs) Yeah. Being young and healthy is a big part of it for sure. And looking at your website and your presentation, there's a lot of regulatory requirements for you and your team. Can you tell us about those? Sure. The the big one is going to be OSHA 29 CFR 1910 subpart T. Just like anytime there's an employee-employer relationship, you have to follow the OSHA rules. 
Uh-huh. That's a that's a big one for us. It talks about equipment, training, the type of qualifications to become a commercial diver, the education, the experience. That's pretty much the bread and butter of the commercial diving industry. And it's really good to note that regulations for commercial diving are much different and separate from recreational scuba diving, paddy divers or NAWI or, uh-huh. or YMCA diving. Those are all, you know, recreational standards for people to, I basically call it hiking underwater. Okay. As opposed to commercial divers who actually work for hours at a time underwater. So that's all covered under OSHA 29. The other guidelines that we follow are the AWBA guidelines, which basically refers to diving in potable water storage tanks. Oh, okay. The equipment that's necessary for that. You know, the AWWA isn't the law necessarily. It's just best practices and in, in guidelines. Okay. The DOT regulations are more along the U.S. Coast Guard. So if you're diving in a Coast Guard facility, you'd have to follow those guidelines. They pretty much mirror the OSHA stuff. And then you get into the Army, U.S. Army Corps of Engineers, which is a completely different animal when it comes to diving regulations, both in equipment needs, manpower needs. Uh, Every Army Corps district will have its own nuances as far as experience and Uh uh, qualifications for the dive crew. It really kind of depends on the type of facilities that that particular district might be having under control and what the diver requirements and the types of jobs that you're going to be doing there. Okay. The first rule with the Army Corps is if you can do it without divers, do it that way. So they're pretty strict and they're pretty tight on uh, commercial diving work, Army Corps structures. And how about some of the non-regulatory? Everything kind of mirrors off the OSHA stuff. Okay. So you have like the ADCI, the Association of Diving Contractors International, which is a non-regulatory private governing body or non-governing body. So Mm -hmm. it's basically an association of commercial diving companies that uh, have put together a consensus of standards, which is considered probably best industry practices. Uh-huh. There's some things in that that are more strict than OSHA and some things that may be a little bit looser. For instance, OSHA says a diver needs to have a diving physical every two years. The ADCI says that you should do it every year. Oh, okay. Some of the equipment requirements are a little bit different between OSHA and the ADCI. But I think it's pretty generally accepted that the ADCI is industry best practices for commercial diving. Something I saw mentioned in your presentation as well was liability insurance. That's a whole topic by itself. (laughs) I'm sure. Uh, There's a lot of commercial diving companies out there. And you go to places like, you know, for in Florida, where everybody's a diver in Florida, we often run into people who are starting commercial dive companies out of the trunk of their car with scuba tanks. Oh. It's part of my job as a business owner to help educate the end users of commercial diving services that there is the right way, there is a wrong way, there is the correct equipment to use and the wrong equipment to use. As a company, uh, we don't do any scuba diving at all. We say no to scuba diving. We, we don't allow it. Everything we do is is surface supply diving. Oh, okay. Like the stuff that you would see offshore in the Gulf of Mexico. It's the same equipment. It's the same procedures. It's the same compressors. It's the same protocols. But then you get people who think they can make a quick buck using scuba tanks and uh, will come in and undercut our work. So that's the first thing that we try to educate the end user about is that 
the type of equipment that we use. And that kind of, you know, segues into the insurance, having the proper insurance, having workman's comp, having mm-hmm. a longshoreman and offshore workers insurance. So it's just basically someone who follows all the regulatory things, has the liability insurance and has the equipment to do everything safely. That's what your umbrella needs. Yeah, basically having the, the workman's comp that covers commercial diving. Okay. It's a big part of it. And really what it does is it, it protects the end user. So if a company were to hire us and something bad were to happen, mm-hmm. we have the coverages that are going to cover us for, for doing that type of work. A general workman's comp policy that doesn't have the uh, underwriting for commercial diving specifically is not the way to go in this industry. When we're talking about industries, what industries have you worked in? Boy, uh, you name it from, you know, like I said, the government entities, the Army Corps of Engineers, uh, Bureau of Reclamation on the government side, we work for small public municipalities, cities state government, and some private industry too. I saw on your website, it also mentioned archaeological and environmental evidence collection and stuff. I'm like, holy cow. One of the services we provide Mm -hmm. in general is providing hands and eyes underwater for whoever may need it. So if they're doing some kind of archaeological investigation, we can safely put people into that environment at the direction of whoever hired us to do that work. For instance, we just got a call just this last week from a potential customer in Alabama that swears he knows where there is a stash of gold from the Civil War that was dubbed into a river. Oh. So th- this guy knows that there's you know 70 gold bars in this hole in this river. So that would kind of fall under the archaeological investigation. Okay. And we're going to put together a plan to go see what we can find out with this guy. So where there's water, you can come up with something to do there, right? Right. So (laughs) that's where I say, if it's underwater, we'll take a look at it. Let's start talking about your dive team. How many people does it take to do a dive? OSHA requires a minimum three-man crew. Okay. We always run at least three people. So there'll be a diver, there'll be a supervisor, and then the tender. The way my company works is everybody on that crew is capable of doing any one of those positions. So, you know, oftentimes you get involved in jobs where there's just a lot of bomb time. We've got to keep guys underwater working. So everybody kind of rotates through between the diver position, the tender position, which is the guy that would help, you know, the diver get in out of water, get dressed, manage his hoses, hand him tools. And then the supervisor is the one that's running the radio, monitoring the air systems, controlling the video, basically in communication with, with the diver working underwater. Those three guys all rotate through and, you know, sometimes these jobs, they're in and out in a couple hours and then the next day everybody just kind of rotates to the to the next position. So three men minimum, all of my divers have gone to commercial dive school. They all have current first aid, CPR. Oftentimes they have oxygen provider. We do hire DMTs, which is a uh, dive medical technician. Mm -hmm. So some of our divers are basically EMT for divers, kind of mix that up with our crews. On top of the confined space training that we get, fall protection, there's a whole host of additional training that goes on besides, you know, going to commercial dive school. The commercial dive school basically just teaches you how to blow bubbles underwater. A lot of the work we do, a lot of the training we do is on the job training. Wow. Sounds pretty intense. Like I said earlier, the washout rate is really, really high for this industry. I can't really explain it other than it's just a really a difficult way to make a living. 
especially mm-hmm. when you're first starting out. Finding consistent work is difficult for a lot of guys. When you get out of diet school, you basically have two paths that you can go. You can go inland, which is the type of work that we do, or you can mm-hmm. go offshore, which would be like the Gulf of Mexico. Oh, okay. Those guys go out in the oil platforms and the oil platform support ships, and they basically live in a boat for 30, 45 days at a time. They have a, a hierarchy out there where new divers come in as tenders, and they're basically the diver's helper for the first two or three years until they break out and become a diver themselves. So it's it's a tough go at it. The offshore mm-hmm. world is a completely different work environment than inland diving, which is what we do. So it's, it's its own beast then. It is, absolutely. I mean, the equipment is the same, the dive physics and physiology and all the stuff you learn in school is the same, but it's a completely different type of lifestyle than, than working inland. Got it. Let's focus in then on the water and wastewater industry specifically, where would a dive team be needed? So a lot of the work that we do inland is potable water storage tanks. Okay. You see them everywhere. Water towers, ground storage tanks, water treatment plants. And we use equipment specific for potable water storage. And we Mm -hmm. go inside these tanks, we can do inspection work. We do uh, clean outs. And we do it while the tanks are full and they're in service. We can clean out accumulated material uh, at the bottom of these reservoirs, uh-huh. iron manganese you know, in the southwest, in the Arizona. We get a lot of wells out there that produce sand and that uh-huh. accumulates in the bottom of these tanks. And then we do coating inspections too. You know, we make sure the integrity of the coating is good on the inside of the tanks to prolong the lifespan of that particular vessel. And we can do repairs on coatings in these tanks as well. So I have a question. How on earth do you paint underwater? <laughs> so there are some products out there, some two-part epoxy products that are NSF approved that we can actually mix topside mm-hmm. and the diver in the water and... You put it on with a brush just like you would topside. The only caveat is that you have to go really, really, really slow because otherwise it'll just spread and get stringy and make it a complete mess. But it is possible to paint underwater. For uh, pitting, like in a steel vessel, uh-huh. uh, we have two-part epoxies that we can put into that corrosion area and that'll help extend the life of the coating as well. So. You get like pitting and steel tanks. Uh, we can go yeah. through, wire brush them, put our epoxy on there, seal it up so there's no more oxygen get into that bare metal and extend life of the coating. We do that quite a bit, actually. Well, I just remember as a kid, you're like, you can't paint underwater. And I'm like, oh, gosh, now here you can. <laughs> you know, we figured it out. <laughs> yeah, there's just a couple products that we can do that with. I'll tell you, it takes there's a little bit of a learning curve to doing it. My guys like using the two-part epoxies that they can apply with their hands. Sometimes we got to break the coatings out and put it on with a brush. All right. That's on the water side. On the wastewater side, would you consider those hazardous diving? Yeah, that would be considered hazmat diving. We do quite a bit of wastewater work. There's different types of wastewater. Well, yeah. (laughs) This is your area, right? So for instance, uh, we've been doing a lot of work recently at meat processing plants, either poultry or beef processing plants. Okay. They have their wastewater systems and they have their their clarifiers and all that stuff that we we do dive into those. Usually it's equipment that's malfunctioned, Uh clarifiers, pumps, arms, uh, sweeper arms, uh, gates. Mm -hmm. We had a project in Alabama not too long ago where they were abandoning uh, some ponds, some wastewater ponds, 
And we just had to go out and find the crossover pipes that went from pond to pond and fill them up with concrete. Oh, you do clear well inspections as well? Or you, you mentioned a little bit of plumbing. Yeah. So I'll start by saying this. Most people in the wastewater industry don't like to have to call divers. It's kind of like a, a last resort. Got they either it. want to dewater their vessels themselves or in general, people don't like having to call a commercial dive team in to do work for them. It's okay. expensive. Uh, they can't see what we're doing. It's like a last resort. So when we do wastewater work, it's typically because there's no other choice. Uh -huh. uh, in fact, when customers call me, I try to work with them and figure out a way to do it without using divers. And wastewater is something that we do, but it's not something that we aggressively go after. You know, we try to find a workaround. By the time we do get on site, it's just because there's just no other way to do it. Yeah. Sometimes it's just, it's just simple, like uh, maybe... There was a, a lift station that we did some work on where uh, one of the pumps went out on the lift station and they couldn't shut the valve, replace the pump. The only way we could do it was to go inside there. This was a this was a lift station right in the neighborhood, uh, you know, right down the street from you know 500 homes where everything that morning went to that, uh -huh. was, that was flushed. We had to put an inflatable plug in. Uh, we got the plug in, and then they were able to, on the other side of that wall, you know, get their valve switched out, and then consequently get their pump switched out as well. So there's just no other way to do that. They couldn't dewater it. They couldn't stop the flow. Uh, they had to call divers in because that one valve failed. You could have stopped the flow, but you would have had 500 angry homeowners. Oh, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. 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 Right. So who's going to sit in every house and make sure they're not flushing the toilet while you're working in there? There's yeah. just would have been no way to do it. Yeah. Take us through a dive. So you've been called in, maybe you know, at the last minute kind of deal, like you're saying something emergency comes up. What would a project look like? We're talking wastewater or? Either one, water or wastewater. Okay. Wastewater, definitely just some more plan going into wastewater. The equipment that we use for wastewater is different than say a regular construction type job. The divers are completely sealed in a, in a dry suit. So their body or their face is, never actually touches the, the water that they're diving in. We have equipment that we call that our hazmat gear which is mm -hmm. dedicated just to hazmat. So we don't want to be diving with our hazmat gear one day and then the next day working in potable water. So we have separate gear for that. That reassures me a little bit there. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> so the, the first thing we need to do is make sure that we get the hazmat gear to the hazmat job. Uh -huh. When we do hazmat work, there's, there's typically uh, bathing stations or wash down stations. We have uh, pressure washers or hot sea units that we use to uh, help uh, clean up divers when they come out of the water. Okay. Going in is the easy part. It's easy to put somebody in, but when they come back out, you know, we've got to be able to wash them off. Get the, there's a lot of grease in these lift stations. Uh, there's always grease at the processing plants that we work at. So we use hot water and uh, Dawn detergent, degreasers, Simple Green's another one that we use quite a bit. Oh, uh-huh. So the divers come out, we pressure wash them off, they stand in a wash tub, they get scrubbed down, and uh, basically they have to get uh, undressed at that point. So it's not so much getting the diver into the work area, but it's getting them out and getting them cleaned up so they can be not contaminated or contaminate anything. I could see why that would take a little more time. <laughs> right. <laughs> well, keep you clean. And then, you know, some divers like diving in that stuff. 
some divers, it's the last thing that they want to do. You know, there's the thought mm-hmm. of diving in somebody's toilet water, just they, they don't want to do it. It's just not that say, appealing, huh? No, it's not. But I, the guys that do that get paid more too. So oh, usually that <laughs> that's usually the, their incentive to actually get in the water and do something because there's a little bit of a, a little bit of a bonus or a perk to doing that job that day. Got it. So I've decided to hire a diver for the project. What information should I come with to you? Like, what do you need to know? The the type of environment that we're going to be in, whether it be uh, a river, lake, stream, collector well, wastewater, that's where we're going to start. Mm-hmm. Other things are going to be like access. How is the diver going to get in and out? The egress. Oftentimes we use cranes and man baskets to get into locations. Sometimes it's as simple as, as putting a ladder in to get in and out. A lot of facilities and structures have built-in ladders, so our divers can get in and out easily that way. Again, the type of, of environment, you know, moving water is a big one for us. If there's any type of moving water or pumps, uh-huh. we, we want to know about that and whether they could be locked out or tagged out. Yeah, I think that would be important. <laughs> yeah. Safety-wise. Yeah. The depth of the, of the work environment, are we going to be diving in 10 feet or going to be diving in 100 feet? You know, that kind of plays part on manpower needs and equipment needs. And then, of course, the, the end goal of the project, what, what are you trying to accomplish? Mm-hmm. Sometimes it's just an inspection. Sometimes it, it can be more complicated than that. So having a, a clear end goal as to what you're trying to accomplish with the diving project is good to start with. I'm going to have to ask, because you made me curious now, how far deep have you gone? Well, personally, I think my deepest dive is probably 130 feet. We had a project several years ago where we were consistently going to 150 feet uh, on a lake in North Dakota. Again, it takes a whole completely different set of equipment. The equipment that my crews carry, we're good for up to 100 feet. Once you get over 100 feet, you have to start bringing in decompression chambers and bigger compressors. That's actually an OSHA rule. Anytime you have divers working over 100 foot water depth, you have to have decompression chambers on site. So there's a lot more expense with, with, with going deeper. You know, offshore, they routinely go over 100 feet. And that's when you start getting into mixed gas diving saturation diving, which you do see inland from time to time, but most of the inland work is fairly shallow. I'd say 60 feet and under. Okay. Ooh, I'm just thinking of that. I'm like, I'm a little unsurprised that OSHA has rules for how deep and how long and far, but I'm, I'm glad they're there. <laughs> I'm sure there's a lot of people glad that they're there. OSHA doesn't really manage or dictate how deep or the dive tables. We use U.S. Navy diving tables. So the U.S. Navy has uh-huh. a long history of, of using divers, and they actually have charts that tell us you know, how long a diver can safely work at a depth. Uh, without getting into the physics and physiology of mm-hmm. diving, we use U.S. Navy diving tables. The basic rule of thumb is the deeper you go, the less time you can stay on the bottom. So, for instance, a diver going to 60 feet at sea level can stay in the water for 60 minutes. Mm-hmm. Uh, at, at 20 feet at sea level, it's pretty much unlimited. Oh, okay. So 
So depth does play a big role in the amount of work that can be done, basically. Got it. So you got to include that in your timelines as well as how many rotations and et cetera, how much work you can get done. Yeah, I'm I'm sure everything always goes according to plan, right? Well, (laughs) (laughs) maybe not so much. (laughs) I always like to say in this industry, out of sight, out of mind, people don't think about what's underwater. And oftentimes we get calls, people are in a panic. Nothing ever goes as planned in this industry. There's always something. Mm -hmm. I I know there's a lot of water and wastewater operators that are nodding their head to that. Yeah. (laughs) It never goes the way you think it will. You can always plan on something not going right or not as expected. Got it. People say, you know, well, how long is that going to take for you underwater? I always say it'll probably be five or 10 times longer than you think it's going to take. I also noticed that you guys had listed something that if you can't dive, you have an ROV. And so what is an ROV and how do you use it? ROV is a remotely operated vehicle. It's basically a small tethered submarine that has cameras and lights on it. So when we first got our, our first ROV, maybe seven, eight years ago, it was used basically in place of a diver where either depth was an issue for instance, like over 100 feet or dangerous. For instance, there might be a, a pump running in the vicinity. So we could put a ROV into the vessel or the area and safely see what's going on without actually putting a, a human in danger. The, the ROVs that we first started with were uh, basically a light and a camera that we could swim around and, uh-huh. and see underwater. Which, by the way, my son would be so excited. Yeah, they're actually pretty fun. They're actually actually pretty neat. The the only thing with these ROVs is uh, you got to be able to see. You got to have good visibility in the water. So uh, a wastewater situation, it's it's not going to work for you. All right. Sorry, wastewater guys. Our ROVs had compasses on them, so we could kind of get direction headings on them. Uh, We could get depth. So we kind of knew. We want to look something off to the north. We could point the, the ROV that way and limited visibility. And sometimes we were successful in, in finding what we were looking for. Oftentimes not. So we eventually kind of upgraded our ROV fleet to include sonar. Oh, which okay. really gives us, gives us the ability to, in poor visibility conditions, to actually see underwater using the sonar technology. Basically a, a sonar pod that rides with the ROV. Uh, it's made a big difference for us. We can actually find things underwater that we weren't able to see before. That's pretty cool. And I bet it's pretty fun to drive. It is fun. Yep. Uh, they, <laughs> say, they, say, they say divers make the best ROV operators because in the back of a diver's mind, you're always worried about where you're at, where your umbilical's at, what your surroundings are. Got it. So, yeah, uh, it's a good, perfect segue for us anyway to go from a diving company to uh, using the latest ROV technology to help get our job done underwater. I have to ask, just because I'm always curious, what is the wildest thing that you found? Uh, Staying family friendly, okay, but Mm -hmm. uh, what's the wildest thing you found under the water? Well, we did a dam inspection once. We found a a small safe and some, uh, like bank deposit bags i guess were stolen at some point and thrown ah. into the into the lake and that was uh-huh. actually right here in uh rapid city gosh probably 15 16 years ago so robert tell us about your elk and the tank story so this was a this was a story about a community in the high country 
way above snow line that uh, had a tank with a aluminum top on it. Uh-huh. And apparently the snow was so intense that year that the tank was completely covered with snow to the point that a elk up there was able to walk across the top of the tank and fell into the tank. It broke through the roof of the tank. Well, because they're they're not made to hold elk and no, they're elk. not made to hold a twelve hundred pound horse looking animal. Yeah, and uh, the only reason they found out was that next spring uh, they they started getting complaints that their water was tasting a little bit funky. Oh, and, uh, oh. and it wasn't accurate some time that divers eventually went up there and discovered that the tank roof had been breached and there was a very large mammal decomposing in their drinking water supply. Oh, that uh, uh. so, does happen. I heard another another story. This is out in California. The same type of thing happened, except it was a horse that fell into a reservoir. You know, back oh. in the old days. They didn't have roofs on their water storage tanks. They were open. So it wouldn't be uncommon for critters, both big and small, to get into a, a drinking water tank. Now, if they find animals in drinking water tanks, well, it's a whole bag of worms, boil orders, and all that stuff that go along. Yeah. With and probably found a little sooner as well. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> oh, my. <laughs> awesome. Drinking water tanks, again, you can only find things if you can see them. But, you know, we found bathing suits and drinking water tanks. Bathing suits? Bathing suits, yeah. You know, kids pop open a hatch. Oh, gotcha. Go for a swim. I can say since 9-11, though, that security has certainly picked up on drinking water storage tanks. So this is probably in the late 90s that we came across more times where it seemed like a, a water storage tank had been tampered with and bathing mm-hmm. suits or garbage that you wouldn't think you'd want to find in a drinking water tank at the bottom of a tank. Mm-hmm. And it's just for people you know, having a good time in somebody's drinking water system. Uh, that's why we chlorinate. <laughs> yeah. <right. laughs> yeah. yeah. Ooh, okay. Yeah. Um, all right. Well, is there any important lessons learned you'd like to share with us? I know we've covered a lot, but one thing I like to harp on is a lot of the work that we do, it's, it's out of sight, it's out of mind, but there mm-hmm. is a lot of infrastructure in this nation that can be addressed using commercial divers. One of the things I always say is that it can be done topside, it can be done in the water, that goes for construction, uh, you know, pouring concrete, doing coating repairs. Uh, mm-hmm. you know, most mechanical repairs can be done underwater, but you know, don't discount what commercial divers can do, you know, sometimes just getting a commercial dive team in there to do a project or assist with something can save a lot of money, can save a lot of downtime. It's a good alternative that I don't think a lot of people think about or are aware of our capabilities or what can actually Mm -hmm. be accomplished with with, with a dive team, Uh, especially in the water or wastewater industry. You know, my sales team is always trying to educate the end users, uh, what the type of work that we can do, how it can be done safely, mm-hmm. economically. You know, especially these big, huge water storage tanks. You were talking 10 million gallons that over the years, they've, when it's time to clean it out, they drain them and they put guys inside and the tank's down for several days. They waste a lot of water. They've got confined space issues, dechlorination issues, and they try to put it back into service. 
as opposed to you know hiring a, a commercial dive team to come in and take care of their maintenance needs and really without any hiccups in their system at all. That's interesting. I, I agree. You know, it's out of sight, out of mind. And until I walked by one of the trade shows and saw the scuba gear, I never thought of divers in it. And that was you know years ago. And I'm like, oh, that would be interesting. Definitely more common than you would think. Like I said, I've been doing this for quite a while. I travel quite a bit with this job and mm-hmm. there's a lot of opportunity out there. Uh, a lot of little niche markets for commercial diving. You know, there's there's companies that just do potable water tanks. There's companies that just do bridge inspections. There's companies that just do, you know, work in uh, nuclear power plants. Gosh, just, uh, the oil field industry itself is its own little niche market. Mm-hmm. There's companies that just do pipeline crossings over uh, rivers, lakes, and streams, you know, gas pipelines, natural gas, oil crossings. You know, you get down to South Texas, Louisiana, there's pipelines all over the place. And mm-hmm. for DOT, those pipelines have to be inspected. I don't know how often, but uh, they have to be inspected from time to time. And there's commercial diving companies, and that's just all that they do. Well, I know that there is a whole bunch more <laughs> we could be covering. <laughs> I mean, like it could be pretty endless, but I I really appreciate you coming and sharing that with us and making people more aware of it. And we want to let our listeners know too, that if you have any questions, please feel free to contact Midco directly. Their contact information will be in the show notes. With that, though, we want to just thank you for joining us, Robert. Thanks again for having me. I I did truly enjoy it. Awesome. Well, now we're going to segue to one of my favorite parts is the Wanda's Water Tidbit. This is where I dedicate a portion of the show to my mother who sends me articles and bits of trivia about water. And sometimes it's brilliant and sometimes it's just odd. But today I wanted to talk about coprolites. And I really hope I'm saying that right because I heard it said multiple different ways. But Coprolite just means fossilized dung. And there are several trace fossilites and they call those bromolites. Like they've got one for barf, they've got one for intestines, they've got one for fecal matter. I mean, there's a whole bunch of different kinds of fossils. But coprolites usually contain a lot of calcium phosphate that actually helps in replacing phosphate sources. And it was actually mined commercially up to the 1880s and then again in World War I. Had you ever heard of that before, Robert? Uh, no, I haven't. I didn't either. I was like, the more I looked into this, the more I realized I knew nothing <laughs> <laughs> about it. And there's a lot of rock hounds that go out there and look for these things or find them while looking for other things. And the recommendations are, if you're going to try to identify it, you know, location. Are these fossils somewhere near other fossils? You know, what kind of shape is it? Uh, does it replicate the internal structure of the digestive system, textures, you know, what kind of inclusions you have it, compositions. I'm like, holy cow, that's like five things to consider to just figure out whether this is poop or not. (laughs) And what I find interesting, though, is that the paleontologist can really find out from trace organic particles what that animal ingested. Are Are they carnivore? Are they herbivores or omnivores? And which helps them in turn to understand where animals lived and where they are. Now, you can find pieces of coprolite in a lot of like museum gift shops, but you can also get a polished one that looks like a stone put into jewelry on Amazon. (laughs) And this is not a shout out to my family to buy me poop jewelry, okay? 
but I just thought it was kind of interesting that they they've gone that far with it. Uh, you know, maybe, maybe that's something your, your guys could come back with, you know, from a business trip, right. <laughs> <laughs> not the kind of treasures they're looking for, huh? <laughs> well, no, I got some gift ideas uh, with Christmas coming up here in about six months. There you go. Buy soon, <laughs> buy early. <laughs> right. There's going to be a rush in this stuff now. That's right. But <laughs> I just thought that was a point of interest and something new to learn in the water, wastewater industry. Robert, we wanted to thank you again for joining us today and talking about diving in the water industry. Like I mentioned before, if you have questions, please feel free to contact Robert directly. His information and company information will be in the show notes. Thank you for joining us today. Thank you for listening to the Water Break Podcast, brought to you by Probiotic Solutions. Probiotic Solutions offers a broad spectrum line of biostimulants and nutrient products for bioremediation of water wastewater, and soil. You can find more information about our products and the show notes for this podcast at probiotic.com.